This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Equalizer Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kasouf, and I'm joined on this pod by Rachel Krieger and Pardeep Katri. Uh, we are at the end of 2020, the year that felt like it would never end, but here we are, folks. <laughs> we, we made it. Barely. <laughs> Congratulations, everybody. <laughs> um, so we thought it'd be fun here on the Equalizer podcast, these last couple editions of the pod for 2020 and, and folding us into 2021 to first have a look back at the year that was, which, you know, for anybody listening to this in some way or fashion had, I'm sure, a heck of a year and, and hopefully not a truly terrible year as, as I know some, some have, but, um, you know, we'll try to look back with the appropriate tone for a very weird year because some things did end up happening in the soccer world and in the specifically in the U.S. women's soccer world, which we cover primarily and we'll mostly talk about here. Um, and then following this in, in the part two of sorts of this podcast, the week after, we'll look ahead to 2021 and beyond and, and try to add some predictions and, and add some context to what we know so far, which we got a little bit of news this past week from Commissioner Lisa Baird on our other podcast, Kicking Back, which you should go find and listen to and subscribe to. Um, so let me just up front here, we'll, we'll go over a couple of little news items from the year and maybe some in case you missed it, because as, as we've all kind of joked, you know, <laughs> that actually happened this year. Uh, she Believes Cup, the U.S. won that way back, if, if you can remember that, folks. Um, Houston Dash, Challenge Cup winners, Portland Thorns took the fall series, which I don't know if that was so much of a trophy as the Challenge Cup, but it was a, a thing. Uh, Chelsea won the FAWSL on a points-per-game basis, even though Man City had more points at that stage. Wolfsburg with the Fraun Bundesliga title again. Lyon with another. D1 Arkema, 14 straight. And a fifth straight Champions League title, which was a truncated tournament in August. That's some of what happened. Um, yeah. So, so 2020 happened. I, I, Pardeep, Rachel, I was honestly here in April, really convinced myself that we were stuck until 2021 with no soccer in the U S at least for, for the NWSL specifically. And obviously we got that in the form of the challenge cup in June into July uh, or mostly in July, I guess. And, you know, first league back for a team professional sport in the U.S., obviously a platform that led to many things we'll talk about. But, you know, I don't know. I didn't think we were going to get soccer. I don't know if you both did at that point in that March-April phase, but we got it, and, and it was successful in a lot of ways. And, and I know maybe, Rachel, we can start with you because I want to ask each of you kind of standout moments of 2020. 
maybe starting with the positive, and I know Lisa Baird and the NWSL getting back on the field for you, Rachel, was one of those. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a great way to get attention for the league, to be the first league to come back, but not just come back, but, like, do it successfully. I mean, they ran a really – I don't know if – I don't know if tight bubble is a good way to say it because, you know, there were some freedoms. They, of course, you know, they got the coffee truck. They were able to go on like hikes and stuff around um, like Rio Tinto and Sandy, Utah, and uh, the other place. Um, But to be the first league to come back and do it successfully, do it well, and like have meaningful competition was really good. Um, Lisa Baird just, I mean, I, I don't know if I had any expectations coming into it um, for her tenure because of how weird 2020 was. But, like, I mean, she did a lot of really good things. The amount of sponsors coming in, you know, her saying people are reaching out to her about expansion and just, like, all of these good things that are happening. I mean, Lisa Baird came in, basically <laughs> got thrown to the wolves, and then a a garbage truck on fire kind of fell onto the NWSL and she was able to get the extinguisher, put it all out and actually put on, um, well, I guess, I don't know if put on is the right word because the players are really putting on the show and doing the competitions and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, in, in regard to her leadership, it, it's great first off to have a commissioner and to see that commissioner that actually cares and wants the best for the league is really great to see. Um, but the standout moments of 2020, I mean, the the Challenge Cup was a lot of fun. There were a lot of really good stories to come out of that in general. And, I mean, who knew the Houston Dash could lift up some hardware this year? It was ex- it was a great year. Very developed metaphor there. I don't, Can you follow that <laughs> up, Pardeep? <laughs> no, I have no, I have no fancy metaphors. Sorry. But um, to piggyback off what you said, Rachel, and to go off of what you said a little bit, Jeff, I'm trying to remember April and May now. And I remember that I think my jaw dropped when I found out when the news broke that the NWSL would be the first league to come back just because I could not envision at all what playing sports could be like and working out those logistics. I mean, that's obviously something that a lot of people had to deal with was probably really wild. But to not to go with a different high point of 2020, and this is combining the Challenge Cup and the Fall Series, I think what I enjoyed in terms of NWSL play was that every single team that played was competitive in their own right. You know, there weren't easy games ever. Um, I mean, some teams were better than others. The Utah Royals didn't have a great Fall Series, for example, but... There weren't any, you know, gimmies or anything like that. So to watch, sure, the Houston Dash go from constant um, bottom-of-the-table team to lifting the Challenge Cup, and even Sky Blue doing the same thing and getting to the Challenge Cup semifinals, but also watching Orlando then in the fall series be competitive was a really, really enjoyable thing to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm glad that clause that you said of every team that played, it, it reminded me of other things that feel long ago, which, you know, obviously Orlando not playing in the Challenge Cup um, was maybe a, a downside piece of news, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think the Challenge Cup, you know, 
all things considered, obviously, but even even if you sort of set aside the circumstances of of how challenging it was, I thought, you know, if you had dropped me into the world and I I didn't know what was going on, I guess this is sort of this cliche vacuum idea, but I don't think that the level of play was so terrible that I would have said, oh, what's going on here? You know, I think that was a pretty solid level of, of competition, especially considering the circumstances and, you know, a, a new champion of sorts, the Houston Dash, obviously a great story and leading into, you know, we had some, some change up. I mean, the North Carolina courage, obviously being bounced by the thorns in in the quarterfinal there. Um, so I think the challenge cup, you know, successful as, as much as it could be on the field and then off the field, you know, I agree with you, Rachel, good to see um, a commissioner period. I think, you know, obviously for those couple of years, in that transition of sorts. I mean, I, I think Amanda Duffy had taken on a lot of those types of roles without getting the, the title and then didn't really have the, the, I don't know, flexibility is the word, but just the, the opportunity to, to do anything about some things because um, the position was not formalized into somebody who had a final say and, and was, you know, working for and sort of the boss of the owners. So um, to have a commissioner is obviously a welcome change. And and Lisa Baird got a lot done, I think, with the help of a lot of people, obviously. And I think a lot of people behind the scenes at that Challenge Cup. Um, Liz Dalton's a name that jumps out on the operations side. But, um, yeah, I mean, a bubble with no confirmed positives, that's the, that's the term I've come to learn to use all, all year because – even in that bubble, there was some work. There was at least a worker, I remember, with a, a false positive. And um, the whole Orlando situation ended up being uh, convoluted, I guess would be the term, <laughs> you know, as, as that developed. But um, not to get too in-depth too, Jeff, but um, to the point of the quality and, and everything, I know, like, even with the um, – opt-outs because of, you know, people's fears about COVID, which is a hundred percent, you know, that's, that's their thing. You know, you got to respect that there's kind of a pandemic going on. Um, And with the fall series, a lot of players going to Europe, I think a lot, a lot of the um, uh, mindset was, oh, well, it's just the kids going out and playing soccer and seeing, you know, who's going to be on a roster next year in 2021. There's, you know, so much tinkering going on, but I thought all of that was fun. And for me, I'm someone who, you know, I know what the players on the U S women's national team who play in the league and like, you know, the Brazilian national team, the Canadian, all that stuff. I know what those players can do. So for me being able to watch these younger players and seeing like, wow, this person, you know, could really push for a, um, when's the next world cup 2023 a, a 2023 roster spot not just for the u.s but for some of these other um national teams it's it's pretty cool to see i love seeing that younger generation come up and kind of just taking the reins and showing off what they can do so that was fun for me yeah and i think the challenge cup too we should just highlight quickly among these things. It was a big part of NWSL, nearly a 500% increase in TV ratings. Obviously, a few games on big CBS, which is a big deal. First time on on cable TV. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and and some games, obviously, throughout 
all access and then some replaying on sports network. And so uh, that combined with Twitch, the accessibility there, the good TV ratings, good streaming ratings, I guess you could also call them. And then sponsorship. I mean, P and G stepping up, which is a big, about as big as it gets from a brand perspective. And, and again, um, that's a, the big sponsor on the team USA front, which I think, you know, speaks to Lisa Baird's Olympic ties, Olympic committee ties that, that she has that relationship there. Um, adding Verizon, Budweiser has obviously been a big one secret being part of that, that PNG package. And it seems like we're ready for, or we're looking at more sponsorship ahead. So that that's a big positive for the league. Um, but let's talk about players and, and Rachel, you just kind of, alluded to um, some new players that emerged, but I think it was a year two for players new and old, or uh, maybe what was older was new again. And, and Pardeep, I know, you know, a player or maybe players, I should say plural who impressed you the, the year of Mui is that was, that's what we settled on for the. Mui's? Was that what they settled on in the video? (laughs) I remember the Dunkin' Donuts order, but I don't remember the plural (laughs) of Mui's. Although do I remember the Dunkin' Donuts order? Um, a large, yeah. a large, hot something. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, you have to do the Boston accent if you're talking about it. Large French vanilla with almond milk. <laughs> the Mewis sisters. That's, yeah. that's, that's the impressed you the most. Yeah. Yeah. The Christy Mewis Renaissance. Is that the, is that what we want to call it? Um, yeah. She, I don't know. I was just very impressed. Challenge Cup, Fall Series, and then to cap the year off with that goal with the U.S. national team. I think I saw you, Jeff, call it the year of Christy Mewis, and that's the thing that sticks out in my brain. <laughs> I'll take credit. I mean, yeah, I think it was a lot of people were, were certainly. But, I mean, the, I think people listen to this. I mean, maybe I, the Dash don't have, like, huge rivals with, with – no offense to them. I don't think there's, we're still waiting on like really developed rivalries beyond maybe Portland, North Carolina. And I, you know, it's a different subject even to talk Portland rain and what that sort of is at the moment. But um, people are probably tired of hearing about the, the Christy Mewis story, but it just kept going. And to your mm-hmm. point, Pardeep, it, I mean, the U S the goal for the U S I need the number in front of me, eight, eight years apart. How many days was it? I mean, it's, Incredible. It's a story like I don't recall seeing before. Yeah. I mean, nobody should tire of the Christy Mewis story. If you tire of the Christy Mewis story, I'm kidding. But uh, <laughs> but then to watch her and to really come back, I, like you said, I don't think we have a lot of players in U.S. women's national team history who have, you know, they were on the rise, they had their moment, and then just for several years were not part of the picture. and. I made this point in a different podcast about how anybody who was part of the October camp and then part of the November camp, I think has a genuine shot at the Olympic roster if they continue their form and stay healthy. And maybe I'm just romanticizing this a bit, but I feel like Christy Mewis is now back in the picture. I don't think that's unfair. Um, I mean, you know, you have to consider maybe if you said that in October, you know, there's still a little bit of a jump, but yeah, I agree that, you know, then you get to November, she plays in a game, she plays well, she scores. So I, I think you have to consider at least going into a January camp that that's 
on the table to some degree, even if you want to say it's a, a long shot or, you know, there's obviously others in front of her, but there, there's a lot of questions too about players, you know, incumbents, let's call them, who have not played much or at all in 2020. So um, maybe that's, you know, that's part of what we should talk about here on this pod, but, but also uh, Pardeep or Rachel, both of you, maybe, you know, Sam Mewis as well in this picture, um, I think as we're recording here, I want to make sure we don't miss it, but we're, we're due to get the official U.S. soccer voted on player of the year on the women's side. But, I mean, is there any argument that it's not Sam Mewis after what she did with the national team, then the courage, and then obviously how she's been playing for Manchester City for this back half of the year? I'm not arguing against it. No, I wouldn't argue against it either. I think a close – the only close second for me would have been Crystal Dunn, but I think it's Sam Mewis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, the year that it was, right? I mean, Crystal Dunn, you know, like for me, I think if if the league, if the NWSL plays a full season, this is maybe Dabinia's year as world player of the year. Maybe that comes next year. I don't know. Oh, yeah. But, but the shortened season and, you know, Europe – I think, quote unquote, Europe, I mean, getting the Champions League done, getting restarted, there's just been more opportunities there. Yeah, I think that's what, I mean, you were right, Rachel, that Crystal Dunn had a fantastic year when she played, but I think what puts Sam Mewis over the top is that she actually played more than most everyone else, and on top of that, was obviously terrific, basically each and every time she played. Yeah, and I had a conversation um, with a friend about, you know, the, cause my one friend was real, you know, into, oh, it needs to be Kristen Press. It needs to be Kristen Press. And I was like, well, you know, she didn't play as much as Sam Mewis. And then it got into the conversation of, well, are you punishing her for opting out or are you rewarding Sam Mewis for playing and, you know, just kind of exceeding all expectations? Um, and I think it's, I don't think you're punishing a player like, Kristen Press who opted out for legitimate and fine reasons but yeah it there's nothing wrong with rewarding a player like Sam Mewis that has played pretty much every game she can get her hands on this year so yeah. um, I think that conversation is definitely important too right yeah I mean I think on form it's Mewis anyway but then you you just have to in a year like this look at sample size and um, it's worth noting, I guess, from a U.S. perspective, U.S. national team only um, leaders in goals and assists there, seven and three for goals and assists. Those are numbers for both Lindsay Horan, who missed that last game against the Netherlands after a, a positive COVID test, and then Kristen Press as well, who, um, again, things we maybe forget because it feels forever ago, but but had a very good first few months of the year with the, the national team. And then um, quietly, I guess, defender shout out, Abby Dahlkemper led the national team in minutes this year. So uh, a few standout performances there, but um, let, let's real quick, since it was kind of the year of discovery a little bit, maybe at least at the Challenge Cup, um, you know, Shea Groom is another rediscovery in that Christy Mewis conversation in Houston. Uh, a few other Houston players, I'd say as well. Uh, Rachel Daly, obviously, sort of claiming the the tournament um, you know, spotlight of sorts uh, alongside some teammates maybe, but um, each of you, I guess, quickly, I mean, who's a player, not necessarily a name, quote unquote, that maybe stood out to you as um, 
you know, not even necessarily spectacular, but just, you know, surprised you, caught your eye, caught, got on your radar this year? I think you know my answer. Um, <laughs> Shirley Cruz, duh. Oh, she didn't get on your uh, radar this year. Come on. <laughs> no, but I think I, I will be honest. Um, I was surprised with how well she did with O.L. Rain because really the only familiarity she had was with the coach, Fareed Benstiti. She really had next to no um, experience with anybody else on the team. I mean, she would have if – um, Jess Fishlock would have, you know, stayed and everything because they played for a little bit together. Um, I think with the with Leon when Fishlock was on loan over there. Um, but the fact that she clicked pretty quick, and she was, you know, all over the place with assists, and she was picking fights with Brie Vasali, and you know, all of this, you know, she really really got into the NWSL and I'm excited that she re-signed with them so she can build off that chemistry and, you know, win like player of the year or something. No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, I mean, she, the, the quickness for how she clicked with everyone was great. And I would also say, um, Morgan Weaver caught my eye too from the thorns. I thought as a rookie, you know, she's coming in to a team where all of the talk for good reason, is around Sophia Smith. And not many people have really paid attention to her. I rem- I'm going to be honest with you. I remember when they called her name at the draft, I was like, Who- who's this? Um, and and so to see her come in and just really kind of explode in a way, I, I thought that was great. Sticking with the thorns, the two people that stick out in my mind from the Challenge Cup were Bella Bixby and Britt Eckerstrom. Because, I mean, that was such a wild demonstration of goalkeeper depth that the Thorns have. And I honestly was a little bit surprised that, unless they were both protected on the expansion list, and I do not remember, but that neither of them... and They weren't protected, and then neither of them ended up going to Louisville. But, uh, yeah, those are the two that stand out for me. I thought that was... I mean, I will be very curious to see the uh, the goalkeeper situation in Portland next year, though maybe it's not actually that dramatic or anything, and they'll just stick with 80 French. I don't know. But those two really, really stood out for their team. And I think – do you remember that there was a draft this year? Because I only remembered this morning that there was. <laughs> But to spotlight somebody else from the rookie class who I don't, she didn't get a lot of minutes, but I, she made me very curious about what she can do. Evelyn Vion from Sky Blue. Hmm. Yeah. So that was a team that for a very long time struggled for goals and she didn't score any during the challenge cup. And then she went on load to in France during the fall series. She didn't play then, but she, they're trying, they look like it, well, based on their roster pickups, they seem like a team to me that I'm very curious about attack-wise. I'm still curious mm-hmm. about because they've only played like 10 games this year and with limited availability. But to me, I feel like she had wild numbers in college. She looked fairly competent during the, her limited minutes in the Challenge Cup. So I want to see if she gets more minutes, hopefully in a, close enough to regular season uh, next year, what she can do, if she can make the leap. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you've both inspired me to stay maybe on the, the rookie theme and um, maybe a name that I guess was a name coming into the year into the draft, which is a good reminder. Was it, there was a draft this year. Um, Ashley Sanchez, I think was very good at the, the challenge cup, obviously again, limited sample size, but I, I thought that played into a theme too. For me, Washington was already coming to 2020 and remains going to 2021, a very interesting team because they have, they've built on this sort of youth movement. I think you can draw parallels to how, the flash rebuilt in a way in that 2015 and then obviously transferring into North Carolina and, and we know what success has followed there, but you know, the back line there, Paige Nielsen, Sam Staub, I thought Tegan McGrady was very good. Um, obviously Kelly O'Hara has joined now. We'll see where she sort of fits exactly and how often she's, she's playing there. But um, Ashley Sanchez, a player, you know, for me, I, I know, you know, there was a lot of hyper this this is the thing i mean this was the mallory pew conversation and and ironically pew getting traded away from washington sky blue is what opened the door to sanchez being drafted there this year but you know there there's that level of huge hype and we get it because you know she's a player who has played on the youth national team she played up you know she played both you know 17 and 20 world cup in the same year these these sort of milestone moments so there's a lot of hype that comes with that and then you meet this certain expectation and um, i think for me maybe admittedly unfairly i was kind of saying okay well i'm not sure here you know i want to see how this pans out because i I had some questions just about how it would look at a professional level and um, thus far I, i mean obviously a long way to go but i thought the challenge cup you know, some, some real moments of brilliance and a little bit more consistency even in those than maybe I was expecting from, from Sanchez. So I was impressed there, but then just even Washington in general, I think, you know, I think you could make a case for the spirit playing the most attractive brand of football in the league um, right up there with, I guess it depends how you view North Carolina's brand of of soccer, but obviously it's effective at the very least. But I, I think watching the spirit is probably, the most enjoyable experience at the moment. Um, and, and that stood out to me and, and maybe from a player perspective, you know, some of the defenders that I mentioned who I want to always shout out defenders, but Ashley Sanchez as well on that rookie theme is one for me. Yeah, um, I'm really looking forward to the Washington spirit next year. That was, that was a team I think because we haven't, watched NWSL in a long time that I kind of forgot about. <laughs> Not that you, I've forgotten about everything, folks. But uh yeah, that's a te- yeah, oh, thank you. Um but yeah, that's a team that I'm really looking forward to because I think they too are trying to do something special. Mm-hmm. And they're so young, which makes it fun. Again, back to the youth movement. It's so much fun to watch all these. Like it's crazy to think that a team that you know, Aubrey Bledsoe's like the veteran of that team. I mean, obviously Tori Houston as well, but like, I don't know. That's crazy to me. Well, they do have Kelly O'Hara now. <laughs> that's, yeah. See, so you, you think you forgot everything. I forgot that. <laughs> and that just happened like a month, uh, like three weeks ago. Well, Jeff did just mention it two minutes ago. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> well, the, so, I mean, and I think they've made some interesting signings as well, or at least in the sense of, you know, I've seen some, well, this is maybe more of a rain thing, to be honest, but there've been, you know, we've opened the door, which I think is a very positive development in the last year to 
multi-year contracts as, as big as three years plus an option, which is a revelation in NWSL terms where players were living their lives year to year, literally on, on a contract front. Um, and I think we've seen some, some deals for players that maybe are not proven names. And obviously we don't see training sessions in that, but you know, where they've gotten two, three year deals and you'd be like, okay, you know, <laughs> that seems like quite an investment in, in a player who hasn't necessarily proven themselves. Uh, but so I think Washington has made some of those investments as well. And I'm interested to see how they play out. And then obviously, you know, they are among other teams who have talked about going after international spots or international players. And Sayori Takalada, who comes over from Japan, young player who's sort of, I don't know if conquered is the term, but done very well in the Narashiko League. And, and we'll see how she adjusts. So, you know, some interesting signings there. And Spirit, not the only team, but, you know, I think a team that, that really um, continues to intrigue me as much as anybody in the league, I'd say. So, um, yeah, that Japanese pipeline kind of came out of nowhere. And it was, you know, for the longest time, you pretty much, it was just, um, why am I blanking on names? Nagasato and um, Nao Kawasumi were like, that was it. Yeah, no, and I'll... now you have these younger, this new wave of, Japanese national teamers and it's yeah it just kind of like came out of nowhere yeah and Rumi Otsugi yeah this is the new sort of the next generation obviously that this next wave that um you know has come over and I think that speaks to Japan's transition as well in terms of this this generation and and obviously the Sawa's been gone Miyama moving on and and even you know sort of fully breaking from that generation I guess at this point but um, well, let's, um, one more, let's talk about one more thing on the field and, and then we can take a break and transition to, to off the field, which a lot happened there obviously as well. Again, way back. And we've got to draw all the way back to Olympic qualifying here, which is easy to forget because it's always a formality it seems. But, uh, Christine Sinclair this year in 2020 became the all-time world leading goal scorer at the international level, level breaking Abby Wambach's record you know, a lot of things unpacked there because I think she could have done that a lot sooner had Canada played more games, playing games at home, which they never seem to do. And, and, you know, I think they could have planned for that knowing that it could have happened at home, but it didn't all these things, but I digress. She's now the, the all-time scorer. You know, what do you make of that in, uh, how do you sum up her career in a few minutes? I guess, Pardeep, we can start with you of, of at least having that moment this year. I think for a little while now that was that accomplishment was a long time coming. Um, you know, like you made, uh, like you mentioned, there is an argument to be made that she could have done it sooner. But uh, you don't. I don't think. I think you don't accomplish something like that without kind of earning it. <laughs> it's not one of those accidental accomplishments. Christine Sinclair. I mean, she's rightfully going to go down as a one of the most remarkable forwards of her time and obviously the most remarkable forward and player maybe in Canadian history up until now so good place for her to be and she definitely earned it Christine Sinclair is kind of the face of women's soccer in 2020 for me because of breaking that record um it's Something that yeah, you know, I didn't really think about until 
late last year, whenever there was the talk about, oh, well, you know, qualifying is coming up and everything and she can break it. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I really didn't realize how many goals she had scored and like how close she was. And I think that it's something that, you know, there's obviously Abby Wambach's great and the U.S. Women's National Team is great. But, you know, for for Canada to kind of come in and get that little jab um, with Sinclair, I think is pretty cool. And it adds to the rivalry. So I love a good rivalry. Well, I think that probably speaks to, to the um, lack of proper promotion from CSA and, and everything else that this wasn't played up bigger. But um, I digress on that as well. <laughs> Sinclair, um, you know, very humble person and just recently had a few minutes on that FIFA best show in honor of that. And I, I guess I should mention with some of those brief championship moments I mentioned at the beginning of the show, a world player of the year as voted on by FIFA voters uh, was Lucy Bronze this year who transferred from Lyon after a third straight title for her back to Manchester city where her roots kind of are, so to speak. And, um, yeah, world player of the year for her. Again, a weird year. I know I was, I did a little bit with 442 voting on uh, basically that version, their version of the award. And it was Pernilla Harder, which I would say, you know, personally is where I would go with that, that vote. But um, again, weird year. I don't know. <laughs> it's a difficult one to, <laughs> to pick a, I don't think, I mean, honestly, I don't know that it, the best decision for anybody probably would have been to press pause on player of the year awards, but I get why business-wise, commercially, that was not done. But um, let's transition here. We'll take a quick break. Uh, a lot that happened on the field in 2020. Again, we will, in sort of part two of this next week, we will look ahead to 2021. But when we come back from the break, a lot happened off the field. So we'll take a look at that um, from certainly an NWSL perspective, in particular, U.S. Women's National Team, and, and maybe a little bit beyond. So you're listening to the Equalizer podcast. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Equalizer podcast. I want to make sure that you're also aware of the Equalizer's other podcast called Kicking Back, which I host. I'm your host, Jeff Kasouf. Each week I speak with a player, coach, personality from across the world of women's soccer for insight into their career and some current events. It's a nice casual conversation, hence we're kicking back. Recent guests have included Vladko Andonovsky, Christy Mewis talking about her comeback to the U.S. national team, Jen Hildreth, the voice of the NWSL, Kelly Simmons from the FAWSL, Vero Bocchette, and recently Heather O'Reilly. Really great conversations on kicking back. So if you like the Equalizer podcast, please go ahead and listen to Kicking Back. Find us on any podcast platform, including the one you're listening to right now. We have a couple more great shows planned for the end of the year and a lot more planned for 2021. Now let's get back to the Equalizer podcast. Welcome back to the Equalizer podcast. A quick note that if you haven't already, please go ahead and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. We're here every week talking about all things women's soccer, typically with a U.S. focus as we uh, are based here primarily anyway, and uh, have long covered the NWSL and U.S. Women's National Team, but certainly we have uh, an increasingly worldly view. And please go ahead and rate and review the podcast. Uh, it helps others discover it, helps us get the word out. And if you like what you hear, help others find it as well. So 
Uh, and again, if you are listening and you don't necessarily know about our website, equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe, get yourself premium content year round. We have breaking news scoops, analysis, in-depth and exclusive features, interviews. Um, you will not be disappointed to have that access to premium content. So with that, we're back recapping 2020. I'm Jeff Kasuf, joined by Rachel Krigger and Pardeep Katri. And we talked about some on-the-field moments from 2020. We're going to look a bit off the field, which the obvious is COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we talked a little bit about the bubble and the uh, relative, or I guess real beyond relative, the, the sort of literal safety that the NWSL was able to achieve in that bubble. We touched on Orlando missing out on that tournament um, due to some individual team circumstances there. Um, but a lot more than, than just the virus happened, some of it dictated by that. But the other big, big thing beyond uh, the pandemic um, that sort of ran in parallel with that, uh, I don't know if in parallel is the way to put it, but, but was equally important maybe, um, was the focus on racial injustice and, and the Black Lives Matter movement um, that, you know, I, I would say NWSL players uh, to some degree led by way of what we talked about of having the platform of the first league back and, and the ability to, you know, be the first league since, um, you know, since the sort of global sports shutdown in March and everything that happened between then to come back and, and make a statement. Um, Pardeep, you, last week's episode of this podcast was an in-depth discussion uh, about that and the year that was and the path forward. And that included, uh, among others, you know, uh, Jasmine Spencer, who's an OL Reign player who was, was and is very actively involved in that conversation. Um, you covered this for us as well, you know, throughout the year and the tournament. Um, what, what are your takeaways on, on obviously a big topic to unpack, but what happened this year from a NWSL perspective and, and what, uh, I guess maybe the path forward, but, you know, your impressions of the year on, on that front. Well, one of the things that I've noticed, not just in the NWSL, but across the board is that these movements to talk about racism have been player led, have been led by the athletes. So, in the NWSL, we're obviously talking about that. I, I just think those players who really wanted to put a spotlight on it did a terrific job with that. They obviously, I mean, it wasn't like the first time any of them had ever done it, but still to be, to have the spotlight on you in, in a completely unprecedented way where there were no other sports. Uh, uh, happening in this country and to take that moment and to use it in that way, I thought was a great way to do it. I'm glad the league jumped on board with them. But like I said, these players have not been, they didn't just start talking about it in May or June, right? They didn't just decide in May or June, oh, hey, let's try to make things better. Um, and now I think the responsibility has to be on the league and its teams. Um, obviously what comes up here is Deloy Hansen, the uh, now former owner in the NWSL, who made some comments that 
protesting uh, that using a game uh, by not playing an MLS game and using that as a protest against racism was horrible. And then getting kicked out of MLS, the NWSL and the USL is one way that the, uh, the NWSL is getting better on that front on dealing with racism. But we are now six months removed from the challenge cup. We are seven months removed from the killing of George Floyd and the, the league and its teams committed at one point six months ago to, you know, quote unquote, being the change. I am not sure what they've done yet. That is a question I have. And that doesn't mean they won't do something. But as great as it was for them to let the athletes lead during the Challenge Cup and during the Fall Series at times, too. It isn't enough. So I said this at the end of the Challenge Cup, that I'm looking forward to seeing what these teams and the league will do. Um, obviously, the players started the, I believe I have the name right, the Black Women's Player Collective, um, which has been... I mean, they haven't, they're, they're obviously still quite young, the collective. So I'm interested to see what more they're doing, but that's been a great place to start. And hopefully the league can foster a strong relationship with that group. But that, that's where I am right now. Credit to, uh, to the players. Hopefully the league and the, and the teams can be inspired by them to make some long lasting changes because they have the power and the responsibility to do it. I think you really hit everything perfectly, Pardeep, which is not surprising at all, especially if you listened to last week's um, show. Pardeep did an amazing job leading that and everybody um, on the panel had some really great things to say. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there obviously needs to be more. Um, there needs to be more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Tangible, maybe. Um, I don't know if tangible is the right word, but like more, I don't know, like physical change and, and whatnot, stuff that we can like see, yeah. not just like, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but it was a good place to start. And now it's something that you've got to build off of. And I think that like looking ahead, to the 2021 season, what's going to change? What's going to happen? Are we going to go back to the ways that it was before? Hopefully not. That would be, um, you know, decreasing all kinds of things and, and um, kind of taking 12 steps backwards. Um, but I think that in regard to the change and like to the, your point about the players, like the players are exhausted. I mean, the, these um, African-American players are leading these conversations, but like, I don't think a lot of people understand that this is exhausting for them because this is something they deal with every day. It's something that now they have that they're putting out and like sharing their experiences and everything but you know we don't we don't know what happens in these rooms and how these conversations are going like they could be the, this is super taxing for them mentally so to every player 
who made it through this season and everything like with, you know, you've already got the added weight of a pandemic. You've got the added weight of just being a pro soccer player. Um, but then you had um, the, these conversations to that. And it's just like, wow, how much, how many more books can you carry on your back? Um, I, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, great points by both of you, you know, the, the, I think, prevailing sentiment at the time beyond maybe some of the, the obvious messaging was that the change has to be sustained and it can't be talked about now and forgotten in a month or, or whatever time frame. And I, I think it's a fair criticism, Pardeep, to, uh, to say that, you know, maybe there hasn't been as much, certainly on a league level, um, and I think it's hard. It's a hard thing to make tangible to your point, Rachel. And, and I think we hear about and heard about, you know, at the challenge cup, we heard from a lot of teams and players that they had meetings and conversations. And, um, you know, those are things that we're obviously not privy to, um, from our position and, and pretty much nobody outside the players and maybe the coaching staff are, but I think it's a, a very fair point to say, you know, what is, is next. And it's hard to say from a tangible perspective, I think in the WNBA, you could point to a couple of things. And I, I think Pardeep, you probably cover or follow that even more closely than, than I do. But, you know, there are players who sat out their seasons. Um, and, and recently, obviously, I think Maya Moore, uh, before this anyway, and, and since some others as well, who sat out their seasons in putting their energy and effort toward social change rather than, you know, doing that while playing basketball. I don't think that's something that everybody has to do or needs to do or should do. And obviously that's a player led thing as well and not necessarily a, a league thing, but, um, you know, I think it probably speaks to leadership as, as well that, you know, it is predominantly uh, white and male almost exclusively. And, and we can get to expansion here. Um, and talk about some of the maybe changes that are coming on that front and, and small steps. But, you know, I think we heard from, from folks a little bit about that, that it's difficult to convey the message and the feelings when, you know, the, the leadership, whether that's coaching, which is predominantly white male in the NWSL, whether that's ownership, which is the same scenario, um, that it's difficult to sort of, relate. I don't want to say to empathize, but certainly to, to relate and understand. So, um, and we saw that, you know, I think you see what happened with the Atlanta dream, a slightly different conversation or scenario, but, you know, maybe exemplifies, um, you know, even the athletic did a, a study on this that was mostly MLS focused, but as crossover that, you know, <laughs> as progressive as these leagues are, the ownership is, um, you know, they, they tracked their funding of election campaigns. And I, I don't think, I don't want to get into a political conversation because I don't think those lines are always the same here, but, you know, predominantly um, those owners were funding hyper conservative um, campaigns, you know, while sort of backing progressive movements, so to speak. And, uh, uh, you know, again, using some generalized terms here, maybe, but um, I, I think it's a tough you know, the big conversation of 
what's next and what goes forward, I think is a, an important one for the league to address and not just the players. And to that point, Rachel, and, and maybe um, I don't want to transition off this topic too quickly. If, if I, I do actually, yeah. um, I think one good example where both the WSL leadership and maybe the players though, I, again, I think the onus is more on the uh, leaders in the league is to look at um, what's been happening in MLS over the last several months. Uh, MLS players created a group, Black Players for Change, I believe is what it's called, and they have collaborated with the league on multiple things, including um, obviously the symbolism for uh, that they've used and the messaging they've had during their games this year, but also um, their voting campaigns to encourage people to register to vote, and I think just the other day they um, – well, the MLS Players Association and uh, Black Players for Change collaborated to get more representation in all levels of MLS for different groups of people, not just uh, black people. So I think if there's an example of where maybe things could go for the NWSL and its players, that's the example. But like I said, like I continue to say, the onus is on the leadership of the league from the front office to the teams to maybe also meet the players in some way and say, hey, we want to help you with this. Let's talk about ways to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other side of that that I was going to say with, you know, that you brought up, Rachel, the mental side of it, I think a very sound point, and we heard players uh, even in the Challenge Cup, which, again, is six months ago, basically. And and since then, I'm sure it's only continued in terms of the mental exhaustion and what that meant for, you know, I think there was the exhaustion of the bubble and the safety combined with the weight of the moment on, on this front. And I think the black players in the league particularly felt the confluence of those things and, and being in that bubble and away from home, away from loved ones, all those things. And, you know, mental health, I think, was a, a spotlight in 2020 that we typically don't talk about enough. And, and, you know, certainly it got talked about a little bit in 2020, but probably shouldn't be forgotten as we, you know, head into a new year, still, unfortunately, in the thick of a, a pandemic. So um, um, part of that, too, um, for, for both of you, and Pardeep, you alluded to this with, Deloy Hansen and, you know, my, how quickly things changed from Utah and, and Deloy Hansen being a bit of a, you know, his second time around is viewed as kind of a savior of the league of some sort with the financial commitment to the challenge cup, which I think the Royals or maybe more accurately, he put in a press release when the most recent news came that that was about a $900,000 commitment for that month. Um, go from that to two months later, you know, the, the comments you mentioned, which I think folks you can look up, but as Pardeep laid out, kind of essentially saying that it was bad business to cancel a game because of, um, you know, a solidarity moment. And and very quickly, some other things that came out about a racist, sexist, toxic culture at the club led by him. Um, and he quickly agreed to sell all assets. Although, it, you know, as of this recording, only one of those assets has actually been sold uh, because that process has been difficult. But Utah, three years to the month almost of coming into the league really at a time that the league needed positivity uh, with FC Kansas city folding and Boston eventually folding in that window 
um, really kind of sliding backward a little bit in 2017 off season, 2017, 18, three years later, Utah's gone because of that process. Could not find a local buyer. Kansas city is back with a new ownership group. Um, this will kind of fold us into the expansion conversation, but thoughts on Utah leaving and, and Kansas city re arriving in a new group, a woman majority owned group, which will join Angel City, which we'll talk about, but um, the Utah-Kansas City conundrum, maybe it's an on-the-field and off-the-field. Pardeep, you mentioned the rough fall series. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think about is that it's a really tough, tough thing for the Utah fans because that was – it was a strong market for this league. You know, outside of an owner who – I mean – embarrassing and horrible doesn't begin to put uh really summarize that but outside of him was a team that like i said it was a good market for the league it was a good team there were good players laura harvey coached them off for a while um so that part of it is tough that's the first thing i think about and really the blame is completely at the fault of a horrible owner not from a sporting perspective necessarily, but from every other perspective, most likely. So that I have to imagine is a tough pill to swallow for the Utah fans. But I mean, I guess the best case scenario out of that is that whoever ends up buying RSL has an option to bring the team back. Yeah. Well, real quick, but, I want to get your thoughts. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was gonna, I was want to get Rachel's thoughts, but I think that's concerning too because nobody, including who seems to be the reported possible buyer of RSL, wanted the Royals locally. So that's going to be. I think that's a landmine to navigate for somebody going forward because there's an option there, and if you do not take the option, and you are the owner of RSL, you are certainly alienating some point of part of your fan base. Yeah, yeah, but I guess that's the measurement for them, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm your um, resident liaison between MLS and NWSL. <laughs> I've made, I'm very much into the men's league. Don't fault me for that, people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember one of the things that I was like ready to die on a hill over. Um, but now have kind of simmered down a little um, was kind of the whole fact that Angel City has like 12,000 owners and one, I think one of them could have broken away to, you know, quote unquote, save the Royals. Um, But I also understand the business aspect, but like at the same time, it's like, for me, a lot of the conversation with Angel City was, well, we just, we support women's soccer. It wasn't, we support women's soccer, comma, in Los Angeles. So I was like, well, you know, you say you're supporting women's soccer, but then, you know, here's a team that desperately needs an owner. Y'all are making big bucks in Hollywood. Why don't you kind of funnel that, you know, you can, like, I promise you, Los Angeles is not the only place that can, can have a women's soccer team. Um, but now I've kind of like simmered down on that and I'm like, all right, whatever. At least they're still committed to bringing back 
um, the Royals in like 2023-ish. Um, but um, to the point of, you know, it coming back to Kansas City, I mean, who to steal a line from Dan's reaction article, Dan Lawletta's ex- reaction article, who would have thought Kansas City would have been like, the the savior right now of the NWSL especially after this year with like all the talk of NWSL was the first league to come back and do it successfully and there's been so many good things you know Lisa Barrett all that everything we just talked about in segment one and then to go down to nine teams that would have been really bad (laughs) there's no other way to put it that would have been like really really bad um so I think the the thing for me is I understand with the the fact that the Royals had to move because NWSL isn't at the place where MLS is because there's talk if um, there is no um, owner for Real Salt Lake then MLS might step in and you know kind of keep the team afloat for a season while they find that owner. Um, NWSL isn't really at that place yet. Um, MLS is. And then I have no idea what's happening with Real Monarchs. Um, I don't know too much about the USL front office um, happenings, but I understand the frustration, but it's also like kind of out of anyone's hands. Like they, they needed somebody to step in and take ownership. The NWSL couldn't do that. Um, and I think it would have been a huge ask for MLS to be like, hey, take the Royals too. Um, because obviously, you know, they are focused on Real Salt Lake because they're an MLS club. Um, but anyway, the whole thing with Kansas City coming back, I'm excited to see it. But very bluntly, don't screw it up. This is your second chance. Don't mess it up. And I'm I'm very confident, you know. Jeff, you talked to Chris and Angie Long. They they seem to have some really good ideas. You know, they want to build a stadium, um, all this fun stuff. And they seem like they're really committed to not just women's soccer, but actually the city of Kansas City, um, which I think there's so much focus because NWSL clubs are still, some of them are still finding their footing. Some of them are pretty established and, I think the community part gets overlooked a little bit. So that's exciting to see that um, these owners have a pretty good idea of what they want to do. And it's all pretty much, it seems like it's tangible. Um, But yeah, Kansas City, you guys talked a big talk in 2019 during the World Cup. Like, look at us. We're a soccer town. We're a women's soccer town. You know, all those um, clips and stuff during the broadcast of these watch parties in Kansas City. And I was just like, man, read a room <laughs> because y'all had a team. Now you don't. Now you guys have one back. So my faith is in the people of Kansas City now. Um, so we'll see what happens. And like, let, let's get a name pretty quickly because i'm tired of saying casey woso well they're gonna have to yeah the branding is gonna be expedited and and um you could expect for that first year folks a uh a stock template jersey so don't <laughs> just be prepared for that for 21 because of the time turnaround but um i will 
Yeah, to your point, Rachel, there, um, the LA ownership, you know, I, I will plug our site again, the a, a really in-depth story on how LA played a role in Kansas City coming in with uh, some longtime friends from Princeton. And um, so this will be the, the first two majority women-owned teams in the league, which is obviously welcomed. Uh, we, you know, Angel City joined the league in 2022, which was some big off-the-field news this year, this summer. They'll be playing at Bank of California Stadium, which would be a different name by then if I have my timelines right. But, um, you know, a lot of exciting stuff there. L.A., obviously a market that's been talked about for a long time. Sacramento, I don't know. We can talk about that on the Looking Forward pod next week so we don't run too long. But also welcoming racing Louisville FC into the league in 2021. Just had their expansion draft, which was a weird one in some ways. Um, so we're seeing some, some growth and some movements. I want to touch on a couple of quick things on the U S front to round this pod out, but um, maybe in a, in a brief, a minute or so for each of you to, to kind of sum up NWSL, which I think we've kind of scratched the surface on a lot of different things here that happened in 2020, but what is your, Takeaway summary, I'll leave it open whether you want to assign a letter grade, uh, a word, a lasting impression, but 2020 takeaway of how we will look back on the year for the NWSL. Maybe, Rachel, if you want to start. Um, oh, man, I don't know about letter grade. I will say that in a, in a couple of words, I think it – exceeded my expectations because of how weird the year has been and it could have been just super easy to be like all right challenge cup that's it washing our hands of it um let's just get into the off season and prep for the next season um so a credit to the league for giving players the chance to keep competing for the fall series and um even just internationally being able to have more access to watch women's soccer has been amazing. So um, yeah, I guess that would be my answer. Yeah. On the field, I think the NWSL made, did their best out of a difficult and obviously bad situation. And on that part, I agree. Maybe they exceeded expectations, Rachel. So, I mean, I'm not going to assign a letter grade because <laughs> that's hard. This is a very loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so on the field, they made – they did a pretty good job with good quality of play. A lot of great players still showed up, still did great work. Um sponsorships, watching, being able to watch women's soccer, that stuff is obviously great. Those are, that's stuff that I think Lisa Baird can consider it a pretty, pretty good job for her first year. And I think in the first week of her job had to deal with a pandemic and everything shutting down. So there's that. Off the field, well, that's always a little bit traumatic, isn't it? Uh, women's soccer is never straightforward, but, uh, what is, um, Room for improvement always. Um, you know, hopefully we don't have to see too many more teams relocate. 
Amen. <laughs> I don't. I, I wrote this already I, on multiple occasions. I I don't mean this as a pessimistic, but like we're not as a pessimistic as a pessimist as a pessimistic view. Um, I don't think we're done with relocation, or at the very least, we are absolutely not done with ownership changes. You know, in the short to medium term, in in different varieties, and that's just you know. I mean, we even see that at the biggest levels, right? This mm-hmm. is just something that happens everywhere in in all sports leagues, but um, especially convoluted in the NWSL. So um, I will, I'll leave that with, with, I'll give you guys the loaded questions and <laughs> I will, I will just um, echo that. Yeah. I, I think the fact that there were NWSL games this year and they were relatively safe or, or you know, pretty safe as can be, um, I think it's a big positive. And then uh, sponsorship, you know, I think there were a lot of positives despite the year, which is um, maybe hopefully shifts some, some uh, hopefully we see a shift in how things are viewed and covered and um, invested in given this year and the losses of some men's sports and the gains on, on at least the NWSL side. But um, let's end it here. Um, because we've talked a lot on the league level, but there were things that happened with the U.S. national team, or at least I should say maybe the federation. Um, and we can end it with, um, you know, again, things that you forget, but that night that the U.S. won the She Believes Cup, which was also the night the NBA shut down, and that domino, uh, that, that was the first domino, was also the night that they wore their warm-ups inside out, the four stars only, which was a response to, uh, the legal documents that were released earlier that week, which the previous legal team of U.S. soccer, now previous legal team, uh, had some, I think objectively you can say, very sexist arguments uh, about um, in, in the ongoing lawsuit, which is hitting five years now, which is very, as I said, off-air tiresome to cover. I'm sure tiresome for everybody involved. Um, and then... That led to leadership change at U.S. Soccer. Cindy Parlo-Cone is now the president, and uh, I guess you'd call her the interim president because is is soon up for re-election if, if she seeks it. And then Will Wilson, named CEO. Immediate change in the tone uh, from those two, from the new legal team, and, and obviously those going hand-in-hand, hand, but uh, immediate change in tone of collaboration there when they took over in – uh, basically March, April at that point. And, but the U S players had the, the big ruling of the year in this case went in favor of the Federation. And, you know, toward the end of the year here, they formalized some agreements on equality for travel and venues and some non-financial things, but, you know, we're not out of the woods on this lawsuit yet. The players are going to appeal that could take, years if they don't come to a resolution, months or years, especially in this pandemic. So um, in, in brief, I guess, uh, for each of you, where are you on 2020 from a federation standpoint of getting the news that the federation won the bulk summary judgment ruling, you know, the, the big thing, the financial part, the back pay? Um, how do you view the year? for for this ongoing equal pay lawsuit? Um, 
Well, I think the agreement that they reached on the working conditions, I mean, that's good for everybody involved. But I mean, my over my my overwhelming feeling about this whole thing is that it's just it's just not over yet. The argument, the legal uh, document, the argument in it that got that forced Carlos Cordero to resign was not the first argument of that type that was made public. So, you know, there's a new legal team now. I wonder how the strategy will change if it will at all of that department. Like I said, it's just not over. It doesn't, I have no idea how much interest there still is at the Federation to fight the actual equal pay lawsuit to the end. Um, at least for everybody involved, some of it is over. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I mean, party pretty much hit it. I'm not great with numbers and stuff, so I can't do a deep dive into what everything means because, to be honest, I don't really understand it all. Um, but the working conditions is a step forward. I think this is one of those situations that, I don't, I don't know how to say it. Like, if you're not really, I mean, those players have a really good argument, obviously. And I think it's a passionate argument and there's a lot of people behind it. So, you know, I don't want to say U.S. soccer is in a tough position because I think they kind of put themselves in this position, but it's just not a favorable look for the Federation. Um, and there's a lot of, federations that have these equal pay issues but i think like the u.s soccer federation is not handling it the best um i don't know if that makes sense some federations just like don't say anything and sometimes um silence is better than kicking yourself in the face so i don't know the question for u.s soccer from my point of view has always been how much do you care about public opinion under new leadership, the question is born again. How much do you care about public opinion? Well, I think I think the new leadership is sort of uh, implying that they do by by their tone, and um, I think it helps have an ex U.S. women's player in charge. Even if, to your point, Pardeep, I think it's worth pointing out that um, that was not the first time that argument was used at all. It was it was maybe that moment of how it was released, when it was released, it, you know, there were the little anecdotes, you know, Carly Lloyd, shall we fight it out was one that stood out. Um, you, you know, there, there was, I think it was just that moment that it kind of really all uh, came to a, a tipping point. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's worth noting. I mean, I'm happy to hear that Cindy Parlocone has been, I mean, she reiterated in a conference call a few weeks ago and, and I, Esther as well of, I mean, she's been very adamant that they need to repair this relationship, but it is also fair to point out that while praising that, that, you know, Paulo Cohn was the VP during that time, you know, as these documents and these arguments were crafted. So um, again, everybody is sort of, everybody has conveniently absolved themselves of, uh, somehow not reading these arguments before they, you know, went, were submitted to court and all these things. But uh, to your point, Pardeep, I mean, there was no, 
you know, th- there's no logically everybody involved. And, and that includes, you know, Parlo Cohn, who was there at the time in a different role, had a- an idea and understanding of what was being argued and said. So um, I think in that sense, the change of tone is an indication that they very much value public opinion and, and um, even if they won't say it per se. Um, so we, we march into 2021. I will, we, we will look forward to 2021 on the second part of this podcast, so to speak. Um, we'll bridge the gap in next week's looking more forward and less backward, although I'm sure they'll tie in as they did here. But 2021, that, that lawsuit and, and everything around it continues with an expected appeal. And let's remind ourselves too, just about a year from now, 370 some odd days is the expiration of the current collective bargaining agreement on at the end of December 31st, 2021 for the U.S. Women's National Team. So um, I have a feeling that our, our year-end 2021 podcast will be very interesting again. That's, that's a, just a hunch. Never a dull moment in women's soccer. There's not. There really isn't. Uh, Rachel and year of chaos. I mean, come on now. (laughs) I'll give Rachel does a fine job of uh, responding to my whatever hour pings about who knows what news uh, in in handling uh, social media for us. So um, it's because she knows we all know. I haven't had a moment yet where I look at my phone and I'm just like, Jeff, knock it off. Um, Which was surprising with 2020 with how chaotic, chaotic the year has been. But yeah, yeah, always happy. Well, I have those moments very often with like the league and teams and whoever else when things happen at who knows what (laughs) hour and what day. So um, knock it off is is a good one for for the folks making the news maybe. Um, Well, I, I think this was a fun discussion. We ran maybe a little bit longer than expected. Could probably run a lot longer to unpack the year, but hopefully folks enjoyed it. We'd love to hear what you all listening, maybe you can tweet at us at equalizer soccer, you know, what, what your moments of the year were or stand out. And, and I think to the point of us trying to get the tone, right. That's, you know, it's not necessarily a rah, rah year for moments of the year, meaning positives, but just what stands out, what'll be your lasting impressions. Um, Pardeep, Rachel, thank you for a fun discussion. And thanks for having us. Well, yeah, of course. I'm, I'm not, I'm not having you. We're, we're, together in this um and you know, Jacqueline, Jacqueline Purdy a shout out to her for uh producing this podcast every week um and and doing a, a fine job on that throughout this this year this chaotic year um and we will be back next week as I said looking at 2021 and we'd love to hear your moments maybe we can try to play with this um feature we've never really used with calling in it's like a digital voicemail you can call in and tell us your 2021 predictions if if you like that idea maybe again you can tweet at us and it'll push us along in in doing that but at the very least you can send us in some form of of comment section or or twitter what you thought about what your thoughts on 2021 and beyond are so um for rachel krieger krieger pardeep katri um, and Jeff Kasuf, man, I can, I'm, we've gone too long because I can't talk. Um, thank you for <laughs> listening to this podcast and uh, we'll be back next week.
When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply.